you're wondering if my voice sounds a little off today, yes, it does. I apologize for that, but we're going to do this, right? We're good. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed uh, lately, and especially maybe this time of year, you know, when so many of us are, are shopping online, that when you receive things in the mail, they often come from this place called the Fulfillment Center. Have you noticed that? That's changed a little bit. I'm not really sure when the change occurred exactly, but, but at some point, instead of coming from <clears throat> the warehouse or the shipping center, they started to use this term fulfillment center. And so we see a lot of that these days. And maybe you've got packages arriving on your doorstep lately from the fulfillment center. Isn't that a term? <laughs> but I kind of like that term. You know, I got to thinking about it. There is a great deal of trust involved when you go and you purchase something over the phone or now online. Does anybody still purchase anything over the phone? Does that still happen? I've got one, <laughs> two, oh my goodness. Well, greetings from 1990. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Whether it's on the phone though, or online, or, or however you do that, there's sort of this act of trust because you're giving somebody typically a, a, a credit card number, right? Or your debit card number. And they're going to take the money for that purchase from your account kind of right then, right? And then you wait, right? I mean, you're hoping that something arrives, but you've sort of entered into this contract where you're trusting somebody on the other end to go ahead and send you the thing that you have given them money for. Which is why, honestly, I sort of like this term, fulfillment center. They are fulfilling this contract into which you have entered. You've said, okay, I want this item, I want this product, and here's my, my credit card or my debit card number, and you've taken this money, now I have some expectations that this order is going to be fulfilled. I don't know if any of you have ever found yourself in the position where you gave somebody money and the order wasn't fulfilled. That's a little frustrating though, isn't it? Now, if it's just back ordered, you have to wait a little bit longer. We understand that. But heaven forbid, if you've been sort of scammed, you know, and the fulfillment of this order never happened, that's really frustrating. It makes us angry. It's not right. We understand that. I want to consider that idea this morning of fulfillment as you turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 1 to start. Passage, honestly, we, we looked at just last week. But we've looked at this Advent in a variety of ways. And a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at this idea that God has, has sprinkled these breadcrumbs, you know, via the prophets. And then it seems that God even delights in the seeking for this gift. That just like you or I, with somebody young, might devise kind of a, a scavenger hunt. And just, you know, get a certain amount of glee watching them carry out this scavenger hunt and find a thing that God has, has in fact left clues and hints throughout history. But last week, we looked at this idea that more than just leaving clues, that there are promises that have been made. 
And one of the things I suggested, and nobody's corrected me on it yet, was that when God makes promises, they tend to be big promises. And again, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that God is uninterested in some of the smaller details of our lives. I believe he absolutely is interested. And yet when he makes promises, they tend to be about really big things, significant, weighty things. And so there are these promises that surround this advent. But of course, those promises need to be fulfilled, don't they? And as you look in Matthew <clears throat> chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 18, this passage we looked at last week. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he was, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She had been told that by an angel in Luke. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. And then look at this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Perhaps one of the most famous passages of prophecy in all of the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this, this prophecy that Messiah would, would be born to a virgin. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill that. Now, I want to look at a variety of passages in Matthew, and we're going to kind of buzz through a, a number of these. But Matthew in particular has lots of these, more than the other gospel writers. Mark has hardly any mentions of this word fulfill or fulfillment. And even, even there, they're sort of in a different context. Uh, same with Luke. Luke has a number more but they're in sort of a different context. Matthew's context is real interesting. We've discussed this before, but each of these four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, approach this narrative, this story of Jesus from a slightly different angle and with a slightly different audience in mind. Matthew's audience is distinctly Jewish, which is why Matthew begins in his story with this sort of genealogy right from, from the word go. Matthew is endeavoring to show, to prove that Jesus is in that kingly line of King David, that Davidic line, that he has rights to the throne. And then all throughout his gospel, Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, really hits many of these things from a Jewish perspective, now, it's not that the other gospel writers were ignorant to all of that, but Matthew really seems to have a Jewish audience in mind, an audience that would understand these prophecies, an audience that would understand the heritage and the history of the nation of Israel, and would really resonate with all of that. So it's certainly not that this you know, isn't for us Gentiles, but that's just Matthew's background and the lens kind of through which he writes this, and so it makes perfect sense that we see so much about this idea of fulfillment 
in Matthew's writing. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. And actually, you know, to give it context here, let's start in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. And here we have it again. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. A couple verses later, we'll just keep reading here, verse 16, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken about the prophet Jeremiah. I'm sorry, by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Many of these things, I, I just want to maybe pause and, and stop here. Some of these things are not things that God does. Many of these things that the prophets pointed out, God didn't do this awful thing, but he, he said through the prophet, it is going to happen. It's going to be part of the circumstance that will happen. And so you have Herod, an incredibly wicked and selfish man who is far more interested in retaining his power than he is about the sanctity of life of hundreds, maybe, of children, maybe thousands. It's hard to say, you know. And so we have this. Continuing to read on. But when Herod died, verse 19, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You see, all of this fulfillment. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested... Let me, let me just pause there in case you're not following with us. This is not all clearly about the birth of Jesus this morning. I mean, we're sort of moving through all through his life. And so this is clearly when he's an adult, when he started his ministry. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth then, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This further fulfillment. Matthew chapter 8. 
starting in verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law, that is Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 14 again just so we get a bit of context. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. You notice how many of these are are from Isaiah, these particular prophecies that, that Matthew is addressing the fulfillment of that we're looking at this morning. It's no mistake that Isaiah is often referred to as the Messianic prophet. Matthew chapter 21. This is not, in case you're wondering, an exhaustive look of every, at, at every single one of these. I'm um, just sort of cherry-picking here a bit. Matthew chapter 21, though. I'll start in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This Palm Sunday event. Matthew chapter 26. We've moved now into the final week of Jesus' earthly life, this week typically referred to as the Passion Week. Matthew 26. I won't read all of this, but beginning in in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. One of the disciples draws a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the guards, and Jesus heals the ear. He says, everybody just settle down. (laughs) But then he says this interesting thing to those gathered in verse 55. He said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber 
with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then the disciples left him and fled. Jesus himself says, all of this is happening, see, as, as fulfillment of those things that were previously spoken. Chapter 27. After Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then takes his own life. In verse 6, the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put these pieces of silver into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, we've talked before about the fact that some of these, I mean, that, that last one in particular is one of those that is so incredible. The, the, the detail about some of the, the, the minutiae here. You know, did it matter to our salvation whether or not 30 pieces of silver was used to buy this field? And well, no, that's not part of our salvation. And yet the detail with which these prophets spoke to the people and predicted, and, and I, I hope you understand okay what I mean when I say predicted. I don't imply that they were sort of making a guess, you know the way I might make some predictions about the outcome of some of the games today, but you know, I'm probably going to be wrong on a bunch of them. <laughs> you know, I'm just sort of taking a guess. But as God spoke through them, they spoke assuredly of some of these things that were going to happen, including just some crazy details like this. I mean, it's incredible. It's so incredible that, you know, I've said before, so often biblical critics will say, see, this can't be true. I mean, there's no way this could be true. Nobody could have guessed that, and so it had to have been added afterward. Well, time out. You're right. Nobody could have guessed it. Guess who told them? God. See, they weren't just making guesses. God told them, and they spoke it to the people then. And we see over and over and over Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these things. If you want to turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to, what do you have there? Fulfill them. Yeah. And it's such an interesting statement because at so many turns, on so many occasions, Jesus was really at odds with these Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, 
I mean, he really was at loggerheads with them. There's a lot of friction there. It's kind of the reason they, you know, as we saw in the one reference before, they wanted to destroy him, you know, because he was challenging their status quo. He was challenging their power base. And yet even here, Jesus says, it's not, my point isn't to abolish all of this. My point is to fulfill all of that prophecy, all of that law. I am the fulfillment of it. I love that idea. That concept, that reminder that we get during Advent, that Jesus and his coming is the fulfillment of so much of this stuff. That he's the fulfillment, in fact, of all of it, isn't he? But as we think about that, And as we discuss that and just kind of meditate on that, I want to be careful. I said this a couple of weeks ago, I think. It would be easy to be somewhat reductive with this and to think of all of these fulfillments as simply being a proof, as if this whole thing is some sort of mathematical equation, say. You know, we're just sort of proving the equation. I don't think that's quite what this is. I think if we're not careful, we could even get a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, as sort of carrying around with him a to-do list in his wallet, you know. Okay, let's see. I got to get to Nazareth sometime. Check. Okay, done. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's not as if Jesus is just doing these things simply to tick off a number of boxes, right? What's happening here is the fulfillment of a number of things that God has said. Now, some of those things are just secular things. I mean, they have to do with world history. That whole business with Herod deciding he's going to kill all of the children that are under two years old in a whole region because some wise men said, hey, there's, there's this prophecy that the Messiah, you know, the new king is going to be born in this area. And this is the time when we saw this star. Because Herod said, oh, oh wait, when did you see the sign? And they said, oh, we, you know, we told him when, and he did the math. And he said, well, just to be safe, let's kill everybody under two years old in that whole region. I mean, can you imagine the wickedness, the horror? Nonetheless, it was something that God told his prophets centuries before. He said, this is one of those things. This is why there's going to be this wailing, this outcry in this region, the likes of which no one has ever heard. But again, they're all signs. And now as we've been seeing signs, this trail of breadcrumbs for centuries, these clues, these promises that have been made, Now, here we are in the Christmas story, 
And Jesus, time and time again, and the circumstances even surrounding him, time and time again, and those of his followers who endeavored to write down this story, time and time again, said, here it is, here's the fulfillment. Here's the fulfillment of this thing that God said. He spoke it. He promised it. In some cases, it was, it was a promise to his people. You know, again, the passage we looked at last week, and we looked at it again this morning, that Jesus would save his people from their sins. That's a big, big promise. Some of them were things like that. Some of them were, were just details, you know, that surrounded his coming that were intended to be sort of signposts pointing to this advent. Even things at the end of his life, like the crazy bit with the 30 pieces of silver in the potter's field. And I mean, how on earth? Well, it's because God knows everything. And that's how on earth, you know. <laughs> it wasn't how on earth. It was how in heaven. He just, you know, spoke it, yeah. And so here we are. At this moment in history. At this Christmas story. And seeing and being reminded of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things, but not simply in a way where he just sort of checks boxes and says, okay, there we go. There we go. I don't want us to simply be impressed by that. Now, is it impressive? That's impressive. I mean, those critics of the Bible are exactly right. No one could have guessed this stuff with all of this accuracy. They didn't guess. They had help. God just told them. <laughs> they had really big help. But the goal isn't for us to just be impressed and say, wow. We can start there. But I think the goal for us as we approach this Advent is to see yet again Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of this prophecy, of all of this promise, of all of this law, of, in fact, God's entire redemptive plan. Let's just pause for a second. Way back there, when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, do you think he supposed that they might actually carry it off without sinning? Do you think? When they sinned, was God like, whoa, I didn't see that coming? Of course not. Again, look at all these prophecies. But see, it was all part of God's redemptive plan. So that you and I, would see, so the nation of Israel would see, so all of us would see what all was said and done. That didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. At the end of the day, we can't become saved by ourselves. We can't do it. So that God can step in and say, you're right, you can't, let me fix that for you. Hallelujah. And we have this fulfillment some of those things that God said explicitly, some that he didn't. Did God tell Adam and Eve, listen, there's going to be a few thousand years 
of me sort of teaching you that you need me desperately to rescue you, to save you. You can't do it. Not really. There is that promise in Genesis 3.15, that first mention of the gospel. But even then, you know, it's thousands of years. Was God frustrated by that? No, of course not. He just had this timing and this plan. And it's so wonderful to get to the end of this and to see, to be reminded of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of that. It's like an order was placed way back when, you know. And then we get this fulfillment. But I think if we're savvy, this fulfillment does something else for us maybe. It just reminds us how sure these promises are. How sure God's word is. Paul writes in the book of Romans that that his word, his promises, all of these things, they're irrevocable. Or maybe some of you pronounce that word irrevocable. I'll allow it. (laughs) Can't be revoked, though can't be rescinded, can't be taken back. You know, there's this sort of trick question, you know, we ask uh, the younger kids sometimes, you know, can God do anything? And of course, our answer, we wanted to, well, yes, God can do anything. Well, biblically, the answer is really no. For example, the Bible's very clear, God is unable to lie. He cannot do it. It's out of his very nature as a just and holy God. He is not able to lie. So when he says things, they are true. When he promises things, they are true. And sometimes that fulfillment takes a while. You know, in this case, from Genesis 3.15 to the advent of Jesus Christ, we're talking thousands of years. Nonetheless, it was irrevocable. God spoke it, and he cannot lie. It will come to pass. It will be fulfilled, and that is what Jesus is. And I think over and above just the coming of Jesus, I say just the coming of Jesus. I'm not trivializing the coming of Jesus. But along with that, we can sort of expand this and be reminded about a great deal, a great number of God's promises. God has promised that he loves you. God has said that he loves you. That is irrevocable. Do you understand? I mean, this is partly not just a proof of the validity of the Messiah. It's a proof of everything that God says and does and is. And God has said, I love you. The Bible tells us that God is compassionate. He cares for you. Like a parent cares for their child when they have a boo-boo, you know. You and I have been promised that. The Bible tells us that God gives comfort 
to us during our time of troubles. That we'll be given comfort when we're troubled. The Bible tells us that God hears your prayers. Every single one of them. He may not always answer in just quite the way you want him to. But he always answers. Or he always uh, hears your prayers and he will answer. The Bible tells us that God wants you to be his child. His adopted child with full inheritance and privileges, a co-heir with Jesus Christ, that that is his desire. He says that he gives wisdom to everyone who asks him for it. He's promised to give strength to the weary. He's promised to give rest to the tired. He has promised to never, ever, ever forsake you. Do you understand as we pause and just think about God's promises to you? And again, this is not an exhaustive list. Do you understand? But do you understand it's all irrevocable? It cannot be revoked. There's no hint of untruth in it whatsoever. And part of what we see in the Advent is a reminder of that, and not just a reminder of just that coming and just the circumstances and just the crazy details like the place he'd be born, the time he'd be born, and later on in his life, the 30 pieces of silver, you know, all of this stuff. But I think if we're really paying attention as good Bible students, it, it reminds us in a larger sense, all of this other stuff that God has said, that God has promised, it is all true. It is all irrevocable. That is what I want to be reminded of on Christmas. Yes? Hallelujah? It's irrevocable. And I think that's important for us to remember. Because let's face it, at times, you might feel forgotten by God. You might at times feel unloved by God. You might feel as if you are out of his favor. You might feel like he doesn't care about you and what you're going through. That there's no more hope for you. We've all been there, yeah? You might feel that way. But I can't think of any Bible passages that tell you to put much stock in your feelings. What we're told is to trust his word because it is irrevocable. And above all else, God has said, along with his desire that you be rescued, that you be his child. God has said that all of that for you is a free gift. That you are unable to earn it by your merit. I'm not able to do that either. None of us is. 
we have too low a view of God's holiness if we think we can just sort of earn our way to him, you know. What he says, though, irrevocably, is I'm going to give this to you. Jesus, the Messiah, that came as this little helpless baby in human form, born into a barn, placed, wrapped up and placed into the, what was normally a feeding trough for animals, that that baby is going to rescue you all. He will do all of the requisite work, and I'm going to give that to you as a gift out of my grace, purely on that merit. And I call on you to receive that. And it's irrevocable, see. That's what's so beautiful and great about the Advent, about the Christmas season. I love getting into these details and seeing, isn't it amazing the, the, the detail with which these things were, were predicted, well, yeah, it is. At the same time, it, it really, you know, it shouldn't be all that surprising because God, <laughs> you know. God just told people like you and I, hey, say this, write this down. I got something for you. I'm going to leave this, this scavenger hunt almost. I'm going to begin to make these promises that there's help coming, there's rescue coming. This Messiah is coming who will change everything. He's going to save your people from their sins. Everything will change. It's coming. And in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of all of that. Hallelujah. And I think along with just seeing that in and of itself, just the advent, that for you and I to see that there's so much else that we've been promised. It's all true. It's all right. It's all irrevocable. It cannot be changed. God is incapable of lying. Being omnipotent doesn't mean the same quite as he can just do whatever he wants. He's unable to lie. So when he tells you, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he will give you comfort, that he will give you peace, that he will give you wisdom. When he tells you that he will give you salvation and eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, all of that is utterly, absolutely, 100% true, without fail. Hallelujah. And this is what we celebrate. The advent, the beautiful arrival of our Savior but all of it is just a reminder that he is the fulfillment, the embodiment of all of these promises that we have been made by God himself. That the creator and the Lord of the universe has said, I'm not gonna lie to you. I can't lie to you. And let me just tell you some things. I'm gonna rescue you and love you and bring you peace and comfort, and rest, and all of that is going to come and be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're struggling this morning, maybe you're here with us in the room, this is 
private. Maybe you haven't told anybody. I mean, we all do that sometimes. Maybe you're watching from home, your TV or on a computer screen, your phone. It's possible you're struggling with whether God's eye is really on you at all, with whether he cares, with whether or not there's going to be an escape hatch to what you find yourself in right now. I mean, I, I don't know. Most of us have been there in some form, in some degree, at various points in our lives, though. And I want to remind you, I need to remind you today that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises that God has made to you, and they are 100% true. I was going to say 1,000%, but we have math teachers in the room, so I don't want to get in trouble. You understand, though. I need to remind you of that. Even those of us who have walked with the Lord for many years, maybe for decades, we struggle at times, do we not? It's good to be reminded by the Advent that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises, that they're all true, that they're all real, that they're all irrevocable. And if you're with us this morning, wherever you are, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in this Jesus, this arrival of this baby that we celebrate, but who will grow up, who will live a life without sin, and then ultimately go to a cross as your substitute. He did that for you. He did that because he loves you. He did that because his strongest desire is that you would be reconciled to him that you would not stay separate from your God. That is not what he wants. That's not what his word teaches. And this could be the day for you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you know what? I'm going to trust you as the fulfillment of all of those promises. I'm going to stop trying this other stuff. It doesn't work. Instead, I'm going to let you, Lord Jesus, be the fulfillment of all of your promises to me and just rest in that. I pray that today is that day for you if you haven't done that yet. Let's all pray together. Our Father God, in the quietness of, of this moment, we do lift our hearts and our thoughts together for those with us who may not know you personally yet. God, will you in this time break through whatever uh, resistance they have to that, whatever doubt they have about that, that you would help them to understand so clearly and just without question that you as their God love them, that you've come to rescue them, that you've come to save them, and that the fulfillment of all of that is Jesus Christ. He's not just one piece of the puzzle, he's it. He is the fulfillment. And by simply entrusting in him, they can be saved. 
given eternal life that doesn't just start after we die, but that starts right now. It starts today with an abundant life through Jesus Christ. And God, for all of us, God, many of us in this room have have been your children for decades. And yet at times we still struggle, we still find ourselves in, in perhaps a pit of despair where we need to be reminded of this simple truth that your word is irrevocable, that your promises are absolutely sure and true, and that in Jesus comes the fulfillment of all of those promises. Help us to simply be reminded, to be renewed, to be refreshed, that no matter how we feel, to know without a shadow of a doubt that your word is true, that Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, the King of kings, will carry out all of these things. We love you, God. We praise your name. We thank you for this time together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.